This is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK. In this week's episode, George talks to Jason Miles, who's the host of This Is Revolution podcast, a columnist at Sublation, and a musician. And the conversation is about whether the contemporary left is a lifestyle brand feeding into the all-encompassing politics of the spectacle, and what role music has to play in that. And remember, if you like BungaCast, make sure to rate and review us. And if you really like BungaCast, join us over at patreon.com slash BungaCast for two original episodes a month and more. Enjoy. So I'm um, very glad today to be joined by Jason Miles, who's the one of the hosts of This Is uh, Revolution and now back on YouTube, you guys are, right? <laughs> yes, we are. Um, we got taken down for uh, a, stri- a strike for cyberbullying um, with an episode that, that I did many years ago, three years ago with um, Robbie Martin. Uh, if you're familiar with, you might be familiar with his sister, Abby Martin. And Robbie had yeah. done some uh, some extensive work on kind of uh, a history of where QAnon comes from. And we were just having a discussion about the work he did. We didn't call anyone any names. We weren't um, laughing at uh, QAnoners. Um, And it was the last thing I did in studio. I used to actually do this show using the same platform you guys use, actually, um, uh, in West Oakland. And so that was the last thing I did. So I was very sad. They took the whole thing down. Oh, yeah. Sorry to hear about that. And uh, cyberbullying. Yeah. I mean, don't don't do it, kids. But... I'm not, yeah, not sure what what that amounts to. Um, but no, great, great show, and I'm I'm sure many of our listeners already um, know about it. But if in, just on the off chance that you don't, um, mm. definitely check it out. So yeah, the first thing we wanted to talk about was um, basically music because you're um, a musician, and I have this yeah. theory yeah. that um, podcasts are basically bands for people like me who couldn't play instruments and basically weren't cool enough to get into a band without being good on an instrument. So, um, you know, if you do a podcast, you practice, you record, you occasionally do live gigs. Um, but what's, uh, for an actual musician, somebody who plays uh-huh. instruments, uh-huh. what's, um, what's the life of a musician like in, in 2023 kind of post post pandemic Are people going back to gigs now, or is it still, you know, still a bit of tough after the past couple of years? Well, I stopped, because the show is definitely more successful than the fledgling career I had doing music for all those years, traveling all over the place. But um, it, it is an interesting world that people are in because you're seeing musicians be a little more honest with the situation they're being forced with. And you're also seeing um, more people talk about concert fees. Um, and that only really applies to people playing a decent sized room. And, and those fees are for merch. And um, right most 
decent sized rooms and and everywhere is different and over the last i would say like six seven years in the states i can only speak for the states i don't know what the situation is like over there anymore but um a lot of the larger promoters that were involved in these big music festivals like coachella for example like golden voice they started getting into smaller rooms and they were definitely taking merch fees in smaller rooms so i think what you're seeing is probably because when bands came back it wasn't you went right back to the big rooms you were playing unless you were a very large established artist um, to get people to come out first and foremost you needed to have pretty big names so yeah. one thing i'm seeing happening with music is that much smaller places just closed in general and and places that are fighting to stay open are, are taking uh, house cuts for merchandise, which can range anywhere from, depending on the size of the place, uh, 20 to like 40% of your merch. So wow. so even, even before uh, the pandemic, um, people were bigger, I mean, like much, much larger acts, would get a spot, like let's say an empty storefront, and just set up yeah. and sell stuff there and make it kind of an event out of it. Um, to avoid <laughs> that that huge merch cut, because there's also other fees involved, depending on if it's a union house and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I I guess my kind of understanding is that in the past, since since I went to when, as a youth, went to um, more gigs than I do now. Like the you know merch is more important. Yeah. Um, live like ticket receipts are more important because. You know, selling selling CDs. You know that that dates me just even saying that. Um, <laughs> you know, those that kind of revenue model doesn't really exist anymore. So taking getting forty percent of your um, your yeah. sort of your your merch sales. That's. I mean, does that make it basically not viable anymore? Because we've had a previous um, guest on the on the podcast who was mm. a sociologist of basically cultural production, and his all his research was basically it's way more middle class kids yes. in, um, in bands now because you yes. basically need to be able to to, to kind of uh, you know afford to do that yourself you can't it's not sustainable um, without a bit of um, or quite a lot of parental help potentially yes you you can't sustain it to the level you have to really be wanting to live on the margins <laughs> if you want to try to do it for real and yeah. and and you know also think about it like this first of all in in the states there's no music in schools first and foremost who can afford to buy instruments there's a reason why you see so many electronic mm. stuff who could afford studio time as a lot of people record at home and there's pluses and minuses to being able to record at home because just because you can record at home doesn't mean you know how doesn't mean you know yeah. how to mix it doesn't mean you know how to master so uh, and then, then you throw the like the the kind of the ticket sale monopoly on top of that too. You know, everybody has to go through Ticketmaster. Um, you can, yeah, and they, you, they take their, their booking and handling fee and the, shipping fee, even if it's an e-ticket. So yeah, even if it's an e-ticket, it's super expensive. So I mean, if you're doing stuff at a smaller level, the last tour we did, uh, my band Bitter Lake did, we did North America, um, and earlier that year we had done a super super diy brazil tour um that's uh yeah i mean obviously we have a brazilian connection a yes. brazilian correspondent on the on the podcast i mean that is quite a romantic idea a kind of diy 
trek around i mean you don't get to do that as a as a podcaster very often uh it's more more screen time and less kind of uh trekking around uh around brazil in the back of a, a van with with guitars and amps but i'm guessing yeah. this story there's going to be a, a downside to this um to this tour no, well i mean the downside i won't get into that's a it's an off-air conversation as we say on tir um right. <laughs> but you know people were showing up at these shows because we were we were main support for a decent size um independent independent band i think they're signed now but um people were showing up and they were trying to do their best to avoid the ticket master charges um we were playing kind of small to mid-sized rooms um and it was fun like i do as much as i love the podcast i just i just did a live thing with um ben burgess and matt chrisman and, and amber ailey frost from chapo at a uh, university of california irvine i did that like a couple days ago um that yeah. was fun it was fun and then we had like speaking of you know podcasters as musicians we we had a kind of after party if you will <laughs> Um, yeah, at, I can. I'm getting a very clear picture of podcast after the party. Coolest of the cool, certainly. At Catherine's Lou's house, and that, and that is as close as I was going to get to those after show moments. Um, and yeah. I, and that's kind of what I miss. I you, you can't stage dive at a live podcast event. You know, I definitely miss stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> Well, maybe you could, but all the people sitting there might be a little they bit would, perplexed they, as you were kind of falling towards them. As what they, would, supposed to do. they would part like the Red Sea. <laughs> but I think to, to kind of, um, I mean, obviously there was this podcasting is the new punk um, analysis, which, you know, yeah. many, yeah. many listeners and friends uh, sent to me, almost all with, with uh, tongue in cheek. But I think there is something here. I don't want to like make the connection too much, but you know, obviously music is, um, you know, you have to be in person. It ha- it ha- well, it doesn't have to be live, but they, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. when it's best. A podcast is maybe the the kind of the way to, to form a band in our kind of posting alone, our bowling alone times. Like it is, you, you can, you know, we're talking um, mm-hmm. via, via screens. We're not in the same place. You're in uh, early morning in California, which I've already apologized. No, <laughs> we're all good. I told you we're all good. We're all good. And I'm in uh, pollen, pollen fueled, um, uh, London. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess to kind of, to kind of, yeah, I, I won't belabor that too much, but I guess kind of wanted to start on that because mm-hmm. we had some, some questions we wanted to talk about because you've written a lot about culture in general, yeah. but particularly, yeah. I guess the intersection of maybe music culture and political culture, you could put it, um, that way, but yeah, just to kick it off with, with pop music, what's mm-hmm. your take on the kind of the role of pop music in culture, subculture counterculture today is it is it dead or is it is it yeah big question i mean there's the easy question to start with and then second question bam get straight into it um yeah what's what's your do you think this has changed or you know is just do does pop music still exist well of course it exists because taylor swift is still you know demanding and getting you know ridiculous sums of money and she's selling out very large rooms um and if you look at who's making the most money for concert tours. I don't know if you would say it's all pop artists, but um, I think there's still a demand for that kind of music. Um, But what's interesting to me is like, I'm not really seeing a lot of new artists. I mean, there's new artists, of course, but not to that level that we saw new artists and 
there is something to be said about the fragmentation of music through algorithm algorithms sorry um so i i mean i i don't think it pop music is always going to change right it's 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 what's popular um i don't think it's always going to yeah. sound like sunny and share it's it's going to um morph into something that's a little hip hop uh a little synthetic um yeah. i still think it's somewhat manufactured like it was in the early days of brill street with what they called rock and roll they didn't even call it pop back then it was just still rock and roll so which is some of the new work i'm doing now for something i'm working on involving millie vanilli and we'll probably talk about it later wow okay yeah i mean <laughs> millie vanilli for um we could just go into that now a, a little <laughs> for listeners who don't know about millie vanilli one obviously you should um watched was it like an M a mtv music awards performance or, or yeah t tell us a little bit about, tell, about millie, millie vanilli, vanilli. um yeah. where to start so the millie vanilli is a group that hits in like 1989 and it's a duo and their sound is very late 80s early 90s a mix of kind of dancey r&b music with a little bit of hip-hop infusion um, kind of, if you're familiar, people are, I don't know how many black people listen to people are familiar with groups like Bell Biv DeVoe and stuff like that. Um, Millie Vanilli was kind of a little, I guess around that same time. And, um, they did a performance in, I think it was June of 89 where, they were doing their thing. They had a song called girl, you know, it's true. And the tape playback machine got stuck and it went girl you know it's girl yeah. you know it's and, and so it got stuck and the guy who was was lip syncing this part ran off stage and a conversation got started about lip syncing and pop music and i don't know if you remember this janet jackson um i think something that similar had happened to her and so there was this whole conversation about um is lip syncing real does it mess with the performance you know here we are yeah. so many years later and nobody really cares but um what happened was the real story is Millie Vanilli wanted more money for their second record. And the man that produced right. them and kind of made them a man named Frank Farian, who, if you have a lot of uh, listeners from across the pond, had a very famous group called Boney M. And Boney M, in reality, was Frank Farian pitching his voice up for the female parts and down for the male parts. Frank Farian comes to... to to promise well he wanted to be a more r&b singer and people told him no one's going to listen to him. i think he's german uh, a german white guy sing r&b and so he didn't think that was true he released a record it didn't hit he decided to do this pitches voice up and down thing bony m sold tens of millions of records until the male avatar decided he he didn't want to do it anymore he didn't like it so Frank Farian had heard uh, the song Girl You Know It's True from a group called New Marks in Baltimore. Um, it was a single they had out. It didn't hit. It hit in Germany in the clubs. So Farian tried to replay everything um, in his state-of-the-art studio. And he finds the guys that would be Millie Vanilli. Millie Vanilli is a name that Frank Farian gave to his girlfriend at the time that worked at his studio. Her name was right. Millie. And so he finds these guys who are actually musicians. I always thought they were models. 
through the research, I found out they actually were musicians. They actually had a group called um, Empire Bazaar, um, kind of R and B ish. They, 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 it actually was a cool name. They had a cool album cover for it too. And so, um, you can find this stuff online. And so, Frank Farian says, "Hey, here's the song. Here's a bunch of money. For them, it was a bunch of money. Um, I think he gave them the equivalent of about five thousand U.S. dollars." Um, and pay their bills. And so they sign this deal and they go back to the studio and they're like, okay, when do we record the song? He goes, Oh no, dumbass, the song's recorded. <laughs> you guys are gonna yeah. you're gonna you're gonna mime this, dude. And so they figure because dance music comes and goes, it's so quick in the imagination of people, right? And yeah. so they figured, all right, we'll do this thing, it's just a gig. And then the song ended up hitting. The next thing they knew, they were getting flown to the U.S. And it kind of took off on them. They ended up selling like 30 million records. And then, because they want more money for the second go-round, Frank Farian, um, who had warned them upon signing the deal, don't ever F with me, um, he outs them. He goes, hey, all everything they're doing is fake. These guys are big phonies. Um, so they decide they won a Grammy. They won two Grammys. Yeah. They won three American music awards. They won best new artists at the Grammys, which is like this big time award. So if you look at best new artists for the Grammys, there's only one year that someone didn't get it. And it's 1990 because Millie Vanilli gave theirs back. And then they, um, Frank Farian tried to release a, a record with the actual singers and no one bought it. Millie Vanilli, of course, who actually has some musical right. talent, tried to release a record. They actually did release a record, but sadly, the label um, was going under literally when they signed them. And so if you hear the numbers, it, it, it is it sounds like kind of off, like they only sold 2000 records for the thing they released, but the label had no money. It went under, but they sold all 2000 copies of whatever they had. So one of the members ends up um, dying some say of an accidental um, uh, alcohol poisoning, drug overdose. Some say suicide. Millie Vanilli had actually went back with Frank Farian and recorded a second record that has never seen the light of day. But um, my work on this is kind of like the idea of authenticity. Because yeah, I mean, this is exactly what I was going to ask. Because yeah. I, I guess my like name Millie Vanilli. First thing I think is that like lip syncing, mm -hmm. like. The, the guy having to repeat the, the phrase um mm -hmm. and so but yeah i guess like why is that why is that bad don't we because we kind of know that this must happen but we don't want we don't want to be able to we don't want our suspension of disbelief to be interrupted we we want to just like have the spectacle enjoy the performance be allowed to enjoy it um so what yeah i mean i guess is this sounds sounds like an interesting place to start to think about authenticity were they were they authentic or, or or not? I mean, I guess how are you like playing that idea of authenticity through through the uh, the pop greats, Millie Vanilli? The the pop greats. Um, first of all, there was a massive backlash. Like we look at this as the scandal of all scandals is Millie Vanilli, right? Yeah, we were fooled, and f again for, yeah. for 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 yeah. younger people that don't remember. So after this happened, the little bit of money that they made. Um, most of it got soaked up in lawsuits because they started getting sued um, left and right. There's a saying in the music biz business where there's a hit, there's a writ. 
And so <laughs> these guys got sued. And that one of the, one of the lawsuits, the guy said that um, he liked the song and the image of the band so much that he was so hurt. He had emotional distress whenever he would look at the record. So the label. Wow. Um, to, to try to stop all these class action lawsuits said, or I think it was part of a class action lawsuit said, um, they'll give you a dollar back for every CD you return. They'll give you $2 back for every concert ticket. And you got so much back for a CD and about, about 300,000 people, this is what's documented, replied. And no one wow. knows if they actually got paid out any money. There's no way to find out. But um, what's what's interesting about this is if you go all the way back to the 50s, a movie like West Side Story, that's not Natalie Wood singing those parts. That's another woman. Yeah, and she was known, and it was it was known. She was she was on a game show. She was like, "You may know me as the voice of these." She sang all the parts for Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady, and these are musicals. <laughs> yeah. So so what 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 changes then, or or why why is that Millie Vanilli kind of scandal so? so shocking that people are being traumatized just looking at the the record and and considering um like angrily sending back their cds or collecting them from friends and family to try and make uh, make a few yeah. a few dollars what what is it that <laughs> that like by make. the late 80s 90s we mm-hmm. like we we need in pop music that we didn't previously well if you think about the way that we produced music there was a lot of Fordis production in music as well there's a factory system frank's uh, phil specter Um, is not a musical genius as much as he is kind of a good project manager and the team of people and if you're if you're bored and and music fans called they're called they were called the wrecking crew and they were a team of musicians that played on everything from tv show um, theme songs jingles pretty much every big record and they thought of themselves as um excuse me first of all they were a little older and they were mostly jazz musicians um, and they were writing a lot of these lines. And when we think about, um, music and what's classic, we don't think like if you're a beach boys fan, if you knew that those dudes didn't play the instruments or Carol Kay wrote some of those bass lines, you thought Brian Wilson wrote, um, do you look at the Beach You'd Boys be any different? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know that Brian Wilson didn't. I thought. I thought Brian wrote all of it, and the rest of them were just doing the he harmonies. Wrote, he, so. he, well, um, again, you, what happens is you go in this room, this massive studio, right? And the idea is that the producer is some sort of Svengali that either created the music or he's he's tell he's pulling something out of the artist. And in this era, the producer is literally just the guy making sure that the project is running on time. Um, I had heard I had heard something really interesting. Um, Darlene Love, if you've ever seen the Lethal Weapon movies, she's the woman that plays Danny Glover's wife. Darlene Love is a famous background singer, but she's also the actual singer for some of the biggest hits in rock history. He's a rebel. That's Darlene Love. That's not the Crystals. The first time the Crystals heard that song, they were on tour on the other side of the country, and they're like, 
we didn't sing this. Who is that? Wow. <laughs> and and she went I mean, uncredited. Yeah, that'd be quite strange, right? Just being like, oh yeah, I don't don't quite remember doing that one, but it sounds pretty good. So yeah, <laughs> good for good on me. That, that was that was this was a lot more common. I wouldn't necessarily say it's all that accepted, but it was it was common, and it just was what it was. And if you listen to people like Carol Kay, that was part of the Wrecking Crew, talk about her, a lot of her uncredited work, um, she was like, "I'm glad people didn't know who we were, because they probably wouldn't have bought those records if they would have seen the people that were making them, because again, they thought they were so uncool and un, and not hip." Um, and ultimately, this is a moment where we're selling an idea of what rebellion is, of what fun is, because the teenager is still a new thing. It's a brand new market that's being created by not teenagers, which I find funny too. So mm. our, our ideas wrapped around authenticity really come out in the next generation where you get the singer-songwriter, and this is authentic music. Um, and even with Millie Vanilli, if you think about that time, um, they hit around the same time that uh, not just Yo! MTV Raps hits, but also MTV does the show Unplugged. And Unplugged is to be the real, authentic music performance. Because look, they're unplugged. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, I don't care. Do you dig the tune? <laughs> then you dig the tune. Well yeah i guess there is that you know just thinking of that famous bob dylan performance where you know he, somebody shouts judas because he's he's playing it like plugged in. playing electric, electric guitar, guitar. Yeah. like playing plugged in and i guess there is you know that is more more technology more more mediation i guess though one thing which like hearing you talk through all of that and applying it back to back to podcasting i wonder if there is going to be a kind of podcasting lip sync kind of scandal where it turns out that actually you know, some famous podcasters haven't been saying their parts. They've bought in some, <laughs> a, a voice actor or somebody who's like more intelligent. Uh, this doesn't happen on Bungacast, you know. I think we'd at least get more <clears throat> people with nicer voices and better things to say. But um, no, I guess the this, this idea of like authenticity mm -hmm. and having something artistically important to say what mm -hmm. is, i just wonder how it's connected to something else that you've written about mm -hmm. this idea of selling out not to say that you're yeah a sellout but that you've yeah. written about i should just make that, yeah. make that clear the you know this was a cardinal sin like yeah. 25 years ago right this was the um you know the, the slacker was not gonna sell out and, and kind of i guess retain that authenticity or something like that um <clears throat> but now it, it, it seems a bit more like there's a certainly at least a part of the industry which is like if you don't sell out you're missing out you're like a, you're like a, an, an idiot you're basically conning yourself because that's what you're there for you know it's not a hobby it's not it's not anything artistic it's just you know here's the market if you get yeah. a chance to sell out sell sell high you know um yeah what's what what's um what's this like uh change what do you reckon how has this um come about because I, I yeah because obviously you've written on this the idea of selling out is really interesting to me because i think it varies for every person and i and i i did start this idea of this piece about Melly vanilli with the idea of something that we do deal with in our industry and that's the idea of everyone's a grifter and i've never liked that term because there are real con men in the world and i don't know if there's con men that want to do uh left quote content creation because there's not a lot of money in it 
there's, there just isn't. And anyone that says there is, is not telling the truth. There's more money in comedy podcasts and true crime podcasts. And, you know, that's, yeah. if, 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 if I'm selling out, that's what I'm doing. But I, I, I struggle with that because I used to think selling out was doing something like as a musician, if I was playing something that I didn't like and then kind of hearing and meeting musicians over the years. So I used to live in a, in a warehouse in West Oakland that was a music rehearsal and recording studio. Um, and in there, every band in the Bay area that you can imagine is some people from your neck of the woods. I remember the cure was there for three months doing some rehearsals for, for a, a, a U.S. run they were doing. So, and I lived in third eye blinds, old room. So I got to know a lot of. <laughs> third eye blinds, semi, semi-charmed. Were you living dude, a semi-charmed kind of life? I time? was living on the margins in a little bitty freaking <laughs> rat filled <laughs> room with my, with my now ex. But, um, you also meet people that are in cover bands and, and somewhat successful cover bands. And those are the guys that were, you know, making a decent amount of money. And sometimes you see cats go into like four rehearsals in a day. Um, and when I was younger, I used to look at that as selling out, but you know, you see the amount of work that, that people do to just play. Like, I just want to yeah. play. And, and when you listen to the wrecking crew, talk about what they were doing back then, these people weren't compensated um, that much for the amount of work they did. Cause again, this was going uncredited. So they didn't get residuals on these records and they're still happy to be a part of it. And they were just like, dude, I was going to work. And this was the only way I was going to be able to, to play my instrument work. And this is, this was cool to me. And I, I, I guess selling out is, is not being your authentic self and, and not telling the truth. And even when these guys are in cover bands, I still see them put their own little flair on stuff. And, you know, unless, unless tomorrow, George, you start Zig Highland and you're like, I'm full fash. <laughs> I'm all about the fash. I'm all about the far right. You know, there's, blood no, is... there's no market in it. Um, <laughs> they may not have done the market research there. It's, but, it's, no, I think, you know, yeah. You know, you know what I mean. Like it's 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 yeah. easy for people to say because Grifter now has turned into you say something I don't like, or I think you make more money than you do. My neighbor, for the last six months, he just moved uh, back across the the imaginary line, um, is a podcaster and author of books. A, a man named Ben Burgess, and people say hilarious things about who they think he is. And I'm like, dude, you live in a smaller place than mine. Like, I know how much money you make, and it's not that much money. And he went to a wedding. He went to, uh, he was invited to uh, Crystal Ball's wedding. And some show did a whole show, and someone, and someone took a picture of, the, of them at the wedding. And it was like him and Katie Halper and Brianna Joy Gray. He's just, just happy. He, he was invited to something. He went and these people did a whole show about how everyone in the picture was a millionaire and, and my neighbor who I know personally, who was literally sitting in my apartment when he saw this, we were cracking up because they were just saying the most outlandish things about him. And uh, he's, he's all kinds of a sellout and he's this, that, and the third. Yeah. I'm like, how can he be all these things at once? And, 
there are literally people yeah. that <laughs> you know what I mean that actually do make all that yeah. money. It's definitely become like, and, and it is the the idea of grifting, not mm-hmm. the phrase selling out. But I think they are, you know, basically same the same. Thing. Yeah, that that's ha- that's become. I think you know, in the last few years, it's a it's a way to discredit somebody's political position. But I don't. I may or may not have called someone or any you know anyone a, a grifter. But it seems to me like isn't it? What's so bad about it? In one sense, like yeah, you're you're kind of you're following your material interests or like that should be legitimate as long mm-hmm. as you're sort of, you know, there are certain, I don't know, maybe I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm excusing myself for my like possible future, like uh, rebranding. I mean, I'm not sure I'll go full to Kyle, but you know, you want to keep it as, as an option potentially, but I guess the, I guess my sort of point is like, what's, what is wrong with this kind of idea of like, particularly political i think maybe that's the difference mm-hmm. political actors compared to musical like context like yeah you can say something which is in your your group's material interest what's the you know what's what's the problem with that do you think it do you think people are calling people grifters i guess basically my question mm-hmm. is to kind of say like you're not authentic you're yes. operating in bad faith you're yes. you're lying yes and therefore we don't have to listen to you because it doesn't seem that yes. that last bit follows for me like it doesn't it doesn't make sense like so if you look if you think about punk so i, I also I, I grew up listening to like punk and, and hardcore music of the of the early 80s and uh one of the great things about that studio is i got to meet some of my heroes right um and what i do now on the show is what i did there in this in this warehouse um I, just talking to to people and, and asking them questions. And I wrote a piece, I, I self-published it in, in Medium called uh, I Was a Teenage Anarchist. And it's kind of about the, the rise of, uh, of hardcore punk, but looking at its rise in the political economy of the 80s, uh, that moment that Reagan and Thatcher kind of step in and how this music was kind of a pushback against a conservative culture that they felt was kind of crashing down on them and the realities that they were seeing around them that they weren't going to have the same middle-class existence as their parents because the opportunities yeah. that their parents had weren't, weren't really there. Um, but these guys weren't necessarily anti- the world like i think we wanted them to be because the moment they got access to corporate venues and sponsorships they took them and some people look at that as selling out but again when you know these cats you're like man they didn't make any money back then (laughs) and now they have an opportunity to you know if if someone comes to them and says hey let's license a shirt uh to sell at hot topic you may say, well, they sold out. It's like, well, I, okay, if you think so, but now he can pay his rent. And some of these people are homeless. And some of these people live in super yeah. subsidized, you know, <laughs> uh, housing and, and environments. And, and, and so I think we look at that term, we put our own definition on it, and we never really talk to the people themselves. Like, uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm a Metallica fan because that for me, when I was a little kid was the heaviest, craziest thing I'd ever heard and getting to meet people in that world. One thing I will say about that band, like them or not, um, they've kind of done what they've wanted to do. 
I don't like every album that they put out. I think a lot of their stuff is kind of eh, but it is what they want to do, whether you like it or not. And just because you're successful doesn't mean you're selling out. And I think for a lot of people, what they deem success, um, once the uncool people like you, then you've sold out to somebody, right? And and I will be honest, you know, my co-host and I, Pascal Robert, had done, um, we had a contract to do some shows through a, a much larger channel. And there were moments of it that weren't fun because there were we had to have feedback after a show and they were like well we don't really like it when you guys say this thing so can you please not say this thing because this might upset the the donors and Mm. i felt a certain way about it because of my punk roots um but ultimately i got what they were trying to say um it was just one thing that i was making fun of that maybe i shouldn't have made fun of and and we moved on is that why you know what i mean yeah no, no, absolutely. I guess the, um, yeah, it's a difficult, I guess it's a difficult or with podcasting specifically, you don't mm-hmm. have that instant feedback and, you know, we, we do have our Patreon subscribers will tell us that they don't, don't like stuff. Pretty much everything we put out gets <laughs> every, <you>. every week. <laughs> yes. God, God forbid what you guys get on this one. <laughs> well, no, no, I think people, people, well, <laughs> make their own own mind up but i guess that you know that kind of feedback loop it it's almost as soon as um somebody with uh with a suit a suit and tie comes in and tells tells you what to do that's that's the the dangerous kind of yeah political like um point but i guess you know to to move we can we can kind of maybe revisit some other time this selling out sorry about that uh, no 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 if, if we end up um um finding some opportunities to sell out i think that's my my problem is not the lack of desire to do it lack of opportunity um but we'll we'll see uh, if you guys hear if you guys hear a magic spoon ad um, that's how you know the alpha bunga boys sold out when you hear the 30 dollars cereal ad but they're all american ads i don't know if we if if there was a kind of a british version of um magic apron is that (laughs) no blue apron see i'm I'm and nail chimp these are the things that I've had um, uh, advertised to me. I can't even remember the name of the brand, so I'm clearly not a good. Um, don't have a good enough memory. You'll be you'll be pitching it in no time once you see that check. Yeah. I I I mean, we should get those um, brand names bleeped out by Alex. Otherwise, they've just got free brand, free advertising. Um, oh yeah, so f, the, f those people. Yeah. Um, but no, I wanted to talk about De La Soul because you've written um, most recent piece Ooh. in Foundation, um, Stakes is High. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and there's, I think there's a lot to, to talk about here and it was a good excuse to just go back and listen to some for me at least. So yeah, thank I, you. I wrote one. it. I wrote it playing. I, I finished it um, playing Me, Myself and I and it's, it ended it ended at stakes as high. Like I'm not even trying to be funny. I, 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 that's how long it took me to write it. Nice. All those records played in succession. 
Nice. I mean, I have occasionally written um, some some things whilst listening to like a live album, and mm-hmm. then it's sort of all the cra- like finish the thing and all the crowds cheering, and I'm like, wow, yeah, I, I, guys, you're too kind. Um, but it's nice when you get those um, those synergies. But no, I just wanted to to read out um, um, a little bit on on this um, from from this, and yeah, just because I think there's a lot of a lot of stuff to to talk about. And so you say the emergence of De La Soul marks the mm-hmm. end of looking at hip-hop music as one that is entrenched in underclass ideology. They were mm-hmm. from the suburbs and they didn't picture as gangsters even when it was a dominant trend. Their music mm-hmm. and colourful visual representation was a stark departure from the Adidas tracksuit, Kangol hats and gold chains imagery of the genre. Sonically vibrant and eclectic, they combined funk sounds of the 70s and early 80s with what we now call yacht rock of the mm-hmm. AM gold era. They were the first rap group to incorporate humorous skits in their albums and weren't afraid to smile in photos and make fun of themselves. The emergence of De La Soul and the native tongues allowed rap music to become more than simply ghetto tales of masculine bravado and inner city violence. So, I mean, that's, I think, um, yeah, a, a great appraisal of, of that group. But I wanted to ask a little bit more about this idea of underclass ideology. What mm-hmm. would you sort of um, take that to mean? Defective Negroes. These Negroes are just defective at birth. And we can't fix them. The kind of Daniel Moynihan, you know, they don't have fathers, and uh, right. <laughs> and and that's why they're violent, and that's why they're uh, they're shooting up the schools. They're they're all on government assistance, um, and there's an ideology around that that was very uh, prevalent in the late '80s and early '90s. It's, it's actually a conversation that I'm seeing happen happening a lot again now. And sadly, I'm seeing it happen in a lot of, quote, black spaces. And it makes me kind of uncomfortable to see this thing being reiterated because it led to a massive crime bill um, in the 1994. I don't think we're going to see sweeping federal legislation again, but I do think on the state level, we're going to start seeing kind of the aftermath of of uh, the George Floyd summer, which is going to be um, very, very hard uh, state level sentences on uh, petty theft and and probably a new definition again on violent crime, which definitely happens in '94. Um, for me personally, uh, the f- the first major wave of hip hop, so it's like the Run DMC and Cold Crush and all that stuff, Grand Grand. Uh, Melly Mel and the Furious, Furious Five and all those guys. Um, it was more braggadocio, right? Um, and then by the late 80s, you get the rise of, of N.W.A., uh, who, are, who a very good black academic friend of mine says to him, feels like it was straight out of the mind of D.W. Griffith. Um, <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with that 100%. Whether it's true or not, it's a good line. <laughs> it's a good line. And and that really kind of took off. Um, and De La Soul comes out around the same time. And actually, those guys were on similar bills, surprisingly. Um, and uh, the fun that those guys were able to have with music and to take rap in this whole nother direction with their layering of samples. They really were creating whole new sonic landscapes um, with the way they sampled on those first few records. Um, and, and, and I think the music will be forever changed. I mean, there's a direct line you can draw from De La Soul to Kanye West. 
Um, yeah, no, I I'm definitely agree. I think the the so if if it's like this late 80s, particularly American ideology, mm-hmm. this kind of underclass ideology, and like the way that you put it is like that hip hop was um, end of looking at hip hop music as entrenched in underclass ideology. How like where did where did it go next? Or you know because obviously for at least my, my like, stay there for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, my, my my starting point would be that when you see these cultural expressions of you know of, of and some ideological like uh, trend or or something like that, it often precedes the political or the the, the wider mm-hmm. expression of them. So if it's the beginning of of the the end, like yeah, what happened to hip hop in the or what would your take be kind of after this um, kind of potential mm-hmm. route out of underclass ideology? Did it did it stay there? Is it still there today? What what's oh, your yeah. It's, it's still there today. Hip hop today, the best line I ever heard, we were sitting at the warehouse one day and these rappers shot a video and they they had all these fancy cars. Like um what's the what's the what's the fancy car you people make over there? Maybach? Is that is that made over there by you? Maybach, maybe. Bentley, is it Bassett Martin or Bentley, one of those cars? They had all these cars. They had some Rolls Royces. They were all rented though, right? And and they shot the video on a freaking green screen. And so across the street from the studio is, or was, it just got cleared a a month ago, was one of the largest homeless encampments. And it was the largest homeless encampment in the city of Oakland. And as they're moving cars in and out, the sun is setting and a bunch of people in the home. I mean, there's hundreds of people in this encampment. It's massive. If you've ever seen the movie, Sorry to Bother You, the scene where the guy is driving down the street, yeah. that is literally our street, that there's no actors there. It's just the camp. Oh, right. And, and the camp got much, much bigger uh, after that movie. And so uh, there's these big double doors. We call them the zombie gate. And they open up the gate to get one car out, another car in. And as we're doing that, the sun was setting and you saw the um, homeless people having a uh, barbecue right and you see this rented bentley driving in front of it very arrogantly and a friend of mine said when i see something like that dude i just think to myself all lives matter and we all mm-hmm. started laughing and he goes hip-hop today looks like a living color skit of what people thought hip-hop looked like in the 90s do you think? Do you think that's that's the kind of become self self parody like like many yeah. forms do? Yeah, I mean, yeah, do you have any? Do you have any any uh, any hope for like? Because I guess my my sort of um, the music, most of the music that I listen to is you know in indie rock or math rock, but basically like uh, three guitars and one bass and and some and drums maybe and I, I don't know maybe it's just getting older it probably is smart drummer like, oh, a really smart yeah, drummer like, yeah some cool time signatures and i'm like oh well this isn't as you know obviously when when you're sort of you know in in your teens you listen to everything and you're like wow mm-hmm. that's amazing but mm-hmm. i've sort of started to think well it's not it doesn't shock me anymore there's nothing like completely new where i'm like wow i haven't heard anything that even remotely sounds like that i've got to like got to listen to everything that band's ever put out i've got to go and see Mm -hmm. them and like i said that could just be like getting old as you know we all end up doing but i'm just you know i guess my sort of my point in this is is partly to ask like do you have any like optimism for for 
hip hop as some music that you can kind of like you're gonna it's gonna shock you with something new or because pop music it seems like and i don't want to put words in your mouth but what you were mm-hmm. saying previously it's now <laughs> maybe an increasing embrace of the of, of its own inauthenticity so yes. you know yes. what you're gonna get um so where you know where where can we look to for anything interesting culturally or should we not because maybe that's a kind of an old modernist idea you're going to listen you're going to have some like mm-hmm. some something which shocks you out of your like turper and like makes you realize the way things are going and maybe like music isn't the place to look for that anyway unless if you're not into some atonal schoenberg or something <laughs> um anyway that's quite a rambling question um but is there any hope for any- music or hip-hop I'll, I'll tell you this hip hop I think is interesting because it isn't for me anymore and when I say that I mean that the newer stuff isn't it isn't for me much like rock has a classic side hip hop has a classic side now that's how old it is and I dig that about hip hop that it can be old enough that when my friends get mad about some of the newer stuff I can go look dude it's not for us that's fine we're in our mid 40s we shouldn't want to care what a 19 year old is saying you know it shouldn't hit us emotionally what a 19 year old is saying in in our 40s and um there's people my age that are making decent records i have heard stuff over the years that's like oh that's that was interesting i mean mostly now i'm going back and revisiting stuff that maybe i wasn't too keen on as a younger person because it wasn't cool um the samples De La Soul was able to take, actually that whole clique of people able to take, kind of expanded a lot of our musical palettes. But uh, I think when I was younger, I was listening to it to try to find a sample instead of just like listening to some of the, the, the quality, the musicianship. Like now I can listen to a song like Asia by Steely Dan and just get blown away by that end drum solo because it's it's kind of a massive drum solo you hear you're like dude he wrote that like that's nuts yeah i mean shout out to any steely dan mm-hmm. fans of the, uh who listen to the podcast i mean that whole album's brilliant and um countdown to ecstasy uh yeah i mean yes. I'm, I'm yeah i think but steely dan are like you sort of said about like the 19 year olds mm-hmm. i remember you know listening to or not listening to steely dan and mm-hmm. talking heads because my my parents like them so i was like oh you know, mm-hmm, this is obviously mm-hmm. crap. And then mm-hmm. being sort of dismayed that listening to it and thinking, this is really good. What does this mean? Does this mean that kind of maybe musical tastes are a little bit kind of contextual and you, you're supposed to like the stuff that people in the older generation can't? Yeah, if, if, some, if you're 19 and all the people in their 40s, 50s are liking this, then that's not the right music. It has to be a little bit more oppositional. Yes. Otherwise, it's not, you know, it's not exciting enough. There's some, there's some dope stuff. Like, you know, back to our authenticity thing and about stuff that I'm going back and listening to and appreciating um, is there's a group, speaking of Talking Heads, called the Tom Tom Club, who you know is the husband and wife part of the Talking Heads. And I can't think of the name of the song. Um, what is it? Whatever that song is on the Tom Tom Club record. So anyway, so genius of love, genius of love. Thank you, genius of love. So we all thought that's that woman playing the bass line. 
turns out she's like nah dude i never played that bass line i wrote that bass line but i was doing so much recording she's like my fingers were just tired so two other guys recorded that bass line that's not me and if you listen to them play it live and you listen to the way it's recorded it does sound a little different but i still dig the song you know what i mean yeah like yeah i guess you know go to go back to steely dan they brought in mm-hmm. a lot of session oh, musicians so many michael mcdonald quite, yeah quite poorly in many cases um, yes but yeah i mean maybe to kind of move move to like how does all this relate Sorry. to no 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 i i'm 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 supposed to be the, the the host and not the one who's like just interrupting you while you're making a point to just say how much i like steely dan um that's not no we can on my part but we can have steely dan that. fandom steely dan yeah. fandom is totally okay so i guess one of the the, the main um things that i did want to talk to you about is this idea of um sort of spectacles not mm-hmm, classes, mm-hmm. but the, the spectacle, that kind of society mm-hmm. of the spectacle or um, mm-hmm. this idea that, you know, kind of classic um, critique that would basically undercut the point of, of what we've just been talking about with, with music, <laughs> particularly pop music, that this is all, you know, essentially a, you know, a, a, con- a construction, a distraction, mm-hmm. part of what um, distances people from, you know, from thinking about politics, from acting um, politically or, or maybe even like acting um at all in the sense of you know just becoming passive consumers of these mediatized um spectacles and so you in one of the pieces you say when we can't settle for justice uh, when we can't get justice we settle for for yeah so yeah what do you what do you mean by this if you think about um the george floyd moment and i and i wrote that piece a friend of mine who's a musician, um, if you do like math rock and if you're a fan of groups like the Melvins, he actually plays with Dale Crover of the Melvins in his band. He's, his name is Conan Neutron. His, his group's called Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. And we were having a conversation one day, me, him, and Ben, and, and he, he said that we were talking about you know people being frustrated and nothing really happening. And there's something cathartic about those protests that you saw but nothing really happened. You got a lot of titular changes. You got a lot of like, we're going to rename the police, but there's still the police. If you really want to abolish them, um, we're going to have, you know, underpaid, <laughs> sometimes third party, the healthcare workers come out instead of uh, uh, law enforcement for certain situations. Um, and some of these things have led to less negative interactions with law enforcement. Um, but I wouldn't say that there was a movement. You know, if you look at Minneapolis, and, and that's what I do in the piece, um, they weren't able to to get any of the reforms that they really wanted when it came to law enforcement. They were going to rename the police or get, or get rid of the police. And I asked the question, like, who captured that energy after all was said and done? And it was... Yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage to to that city, and when cars are getting overturned, sometimes it's the cars of working class people that need those cars to get to work. And you know, we saw this in '91. It happened in the '60s, 
and these expressions with the cries of the unheard you know at a certain point it's it's just a cathartic exercise and there's something to be said about the fragmented nature of the way we see the world all of us and we can only come together in these times of tragedy and while we saw the world for the most part blow up over the George Floyd thing which is of course freaking horrible um i was watching france and i was like this is about pension age the social security age went up in the u.s i don't think anybody knocked over a coffee cup snap benefits got cut that affected like 30 some million people in the united states i didn't see anyone you know yell at a crossing guard so why do we get mad about these certain things that have to fit in a box and granted i think there's other factors that led to all the stuff that happens with George Floyd. But, you know, there's been other instances where these these massive um, protests have happened. And the answer is always a one-size-fits-all answer. So it's just the police. If we just defund the police, we'll fix poverty. And I don't think anyone really thought to say, well, is this really the answer? And then somebody might even say, well, no, defund the police had more to it than that. And there were these anti-poverty. It's like, okay, but the only messaging that most people got and the real mission was, this is the problem is police. And once we get rid of them, then, then all the, all the other ills go away. Just like the idea that Medicare for all comes in and this is the, in the U S context, right? And then all your problems go away. It's going to, it's going to fix a lot. These reforms would be massive. They would help a lot, but it's not going to make all the problems go away. And when certain places had defunded police or or maybe money was moved to other sectors of the budget, um, people saw how police respond. And right now, what we're seeing in the U.S. is a lot of places that just have democratic leadership in the municipalities. There's a huge push of the citizens saying, we need you guys to lock these guys up for longer. You're not locking people up for petty crime. Now that petty crime is becoming somewhat violent, people are starting to get beat over the head for stupid stuff. This isn't the 90s. In the 90s, we have to remember that because of the influx of very cheap cocaine that you can rock rock up and, and turn into crack, you can turn a brick of Coke into fifty to $70,000 overnight. So you're talking about crack houses and blocks worth millions of dollars. And you have a distribution network in street gangs. So the violence of that era definitely trumps what we're seeing now. But for people our age and even a little younger, there is a memory of that time, especially in places like New York. There's a reason why Eric Adams got elected mayor. And I'm not saying these are good things. This is just observations. Mm. Um, and there's a fear cats have about returning back to that lawless city that New York was. There's a fear for people that Los Angeles will become, you know, kind of that war zone that it was. I don't think so, but I do understand the concerns when California spent $17 billion on homelessness and we officially have the most homeless people. I still say we, even though I don't live in California, um, than any other 
uh, state in, in the U.S. And people are frustrated and they're blaming Democratic leadership, rightfully so, and saying, you have to fix it. You have to lock these people up. We don't want to see the blight anymore. And I am seeing a return again to, again, as I said earlier, the underclass ideology rhetoric and, yeah. you know, kind of, I almost feel like a doubling down on the American ideals of who's worthy for what. And in, in, in what but, sense? Cause I think when you sort of said, when you were talking about like the, the fear of the lawless city, I was, I was going to sort of say something, ask something about like, is this the echo of the, the underclass ideology? Yes. Um, today? Yes. But, but from, no, 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 but from the seventies, not even from right. the nineties, but from this, like that first Reagan term in office where it's like, the problem is these right. defective moms, these people that are welfare cheats. Like the problem, like it, it, what's interesting is if you think about social services as a way to protect, you know, regular citizens from the freedom of the market and not punishment for being poor, and even people that may even call themselves leftists, I didn't see the outrage of this, the cutting of SNAP benefits, which is going to affect tons of children. I don't see the same outrage. You know what I mean? Even with homelessness, I, I worked in a massive shelter. It was a, it was a big hotel in, uh, in Oakland. And uh, I didn't see a lot of outrage. No one really cares about people when you put them away. It's almost like, it's not almost like, when you deal with surplus populations, and this is going to sound gross, nobody really gives that much of a damn about you and you don't have that much of a say so and even people that want to be activists it's like do you really care about these people there was a moment where yeah. people were telling people not to go to some of the shelter hotels because there were curfews and rules and they were like well there's rules there and there's curfews and that's demeaning i'm like well there's rules everywhere. There's rules in the townhouse that I'm staying in right now. Um, there's rules in most apartment complexes. And when you have 300 people that have been abiding by their own personal rules for sometimes long periods of time, you have various de varying degrees of, of mental illness that you're dealing with. Um, there needs to be some sort of order in play. Um, nobody's bullying people with rules. We don't want to be cops. We want everybody to enjoy their stay. They have their own bathroom for the first time. We want cats to enjoy this, this, this moment, <clears throat> but there still has to be some sort of rules because these are, these are violent environments. Um, and I don't think people understood when you have certain reforms, when you're going to have less time, for people that do petty crime, it might get a little worse before it gets better. And these conversations were never had because again, the answer was one size fits all. Once you stop doing X, then Y goes away.
guess that's a, a kind of a structure of, of thinking that you see quite a lot, that kind of magical, like if only we could do this one thing, it would it would solve sort of all the problems. It's the magic, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's the key that can that can um just unlock, you know, the the shortcut almost to 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 adjust an equal society however it's it's phrased in the minds of, of people who kind of proceed along these along these lines but i guess i wanted to sort of link link this to because you're kind of touching on it as you were saying it but this the the spectacle like mm-hmm. are we all addicted to this mm-hmm. the kind of i guess the spectacular way of consuming politics i.e mm-hmm. you know we're distanced from it it's it's mediatized it's mediated like the in the George George Floyd case the kind of it, it was you know it's not a, a question of here's some changes to numbers with with pension um kind of age changes but here is yeah. a spectacular event and here it can be you know distributed it's it's a it is a it is it is part of something which is you know consumed by the by the viewer by the news um the news viewer and I just I wanted to read out some I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I, I you know, <laughs> in, my, in my preparation, so I want to steamroll through it. Um, yeah, so DeBoer um, in Society of Spectacle mm-hmm. says, in societies where modern conditions of production prevail, all of life presents itself as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was once directly lived has moved away into a representation. And he says, the spectacle is not a collection of images, but a, so- a social relation among people mediated by images. So I guess the question is like, mm-hmm. is this... Is this how we, you know, are we all addicted to the spectacle in the sense of it's the way we consume politics and it's the way we want to consume politics? Want and the way we do, I think, is different. I think it's the only way we know how. So I don't know if I'd say the word want. Um, I think we consume politics the way we consume pro wrestling. It's it's good guys and bad guys. And there's a lot of kayfabe involved. Yeah, um, just um, ex- explain this sure. uh, this term to to listeners who might not. Kayfabe, kayfabe yeah. is an old is an old vaudeville term, um, and it's it's kind of like the code, the mag- magician's code. Um, you never let people know about the secret. You never tell them that wrestling is fake. Um, for years, even to this day, if you get a wrestler in a news interview and you ask them if it's if it's fake, they'll either show you like injuries. You know, they've been known as slap reporters. Uh, my favorite is, uh, I can't remember the wrestler's name, but he slaps the hell out of John Stossel from uh, from formerly of ABC. And, and I think John Stossel lost hearing this year. Um, but but kayfabe is kind of, you know, when you watch wrestling, there's a bad guy called a heel and a good guy is called a baby face. And everyone knows it's fake. There's not anyone in the modern era that's why, even in the 80s, no one's watching wrestling going, oh, is this real or fake? All the matches are predetermined. Um, but what do you watch it for? You watch for the spectacle of it all. You watch for the guy, the, 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 the heel that comes out with the fabulous robe. You love the crap talk that they do. And I think for me, it really started to make sense about kind of the political era being full of kayfabe um, with the Trump Sanders Clinton run for president. Um, I found that fascinating. Who, who, who was the heel? Was Hillary oh, the de- Hillary? Well, well, Hillary is kind of, she, she thinks she's the baby face, but she's kind of the assistant heel, if you will. 
And and Donald Trump is one of those almost like 90s era wrestlers where it was the attitude era. And it's it's interesting to watch all this stuff play out because that's this is the way we relate to stuff. There's good guys and there's bad guys. There's 400 people in Congress in the United States. There's like five people everybody knows. And again, we were speaking at a university the other day and I, and I brought that up when, when people talk about, you know, were you guys part of the cult of Bernie or whatever the, the question was, I'm probably getting it wrong. And um, I think our political imagination is gone because of the spectacle. Um, Barack Obama kind of, kind of shows us that, right? Here's a guy that's just a state senator for what, like one and a half terms, a state senator. You know, before presidents were governors, because if you're a governor, you're kind of a president of a little, your little, your own little country, <laughs> right? You've done, your, you've done your management training. Yeah, you can call the National Guard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You were the you were a district manager, right? And uh, and you got the state senator that wins, and you're kind of like, okay, this guy doesn't have any experience doing anything, um, and it's okay because he speaks so well. He's so well spoken. He's really smart. He's smarter than the last guy because the last guy was an idiot, right? This is this is. I'm just kind of overgeneralizing a lot of the conversation that was had during that 2008. So by the time you get Donald Trump, you can really only have Donald Trump because you have Barack Obama. I don't, you know, Donald Trump tried to run a long time ago and it, and it definitely fell flat on his face because everyone's like, well, "You're a joke. You don't have any experience in politics." No one cared about his non-experience. He had been the spectacle f- for 40 years in my entire lifetime being aware of the television. I've known who Donald Trump is. And then he spent all those years with that apprentice show pretending that he was the richest, most powerful man in the world. And, and that's all pro wrestling. That's all pro wrestling. And it and it worked. He 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 pro wrestled himself right into the into the the White House and definitely pro wrestled himself right out of it. And I don't think he's he's gonna come back. But um still the way we relate to politics is just so good guy, bad guy that now you have politicians that just kind of play up the good guy, bad guy narrative for people. I really believe that you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Boberts of the world are just playing their role as heel. Um, these are so people that... What, what yeah, is, kind. yeah. Mm-hmm. no, because I think I think the idea of Trump as, an, as a kind of attitude era 90s wrestler <laughs> basically hits the nail on the head. Like a good, a good shit talker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, doesn't actually need, need to know how to fight, but, you know, can... can um, Get in the ring before he gets in the ring can can definitely talk a talk a Steve, good, Steve good Austin. Game. He's Steve Austin. Yeah. St- Stone Cold Donald Trump. Stone Cold, um, yeah. <laughs> but I think, but what does this say about about uh, us as the kind mm. of you know because wrestling is is kind of in, enjoyable to see a Royal Rumble for the presidency that you know I'd I'd, I'd watch I'd watch that. But what is it, you know, because you said in the article that we're, we're kind of, we're in a moment that's characterized by the mm-hmm. found absence of mass politics, you know? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess this is the, mm-hmm. this is the kind of the, 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 the classic spectacle analysis that it's, 
it, there's something we like about it to the extent that we we kind of accept our position as um as spectators and we we are we allow ourselves to enjoy it um somehow i mean is is that is that right i mean are we sort of you know what the we, drama um, like like we, we we go to the left as a lifestyle brand of one one yeah. sort of like way that we're trying to kid ourselves of 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 kind of exiting the spectacle i mean is is there actually a way out or or like are we condemned to just be uh cheering for for candidates in a kind of um already pre-decided wrestling match of politics if you want to put it that way i think first and foremost people have to remember that you we have to get back to to real meet spaces and and talk to each other in real life um i'll try to i'll try to be brief i'm sorry i'm, I'm trying to collect my thoughts um because that's, um, I mean, that, I guess it's a bit of an un- it's a bit of an unfair question. No, way, no, right? no, like, it's 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 a good question. No, no, no. I wonder. Also, I wonder. also a bit ironic that like I agree we need to be in in meet spaces, but we're we're obviously having this conversation uh, across like, the pond remotely, and then people yeah. will listen to it uh, asynchronously when it when it gets released. And so you know, got to be aware of the um yeah the limitations and we, you know the we, size of the task, I guess. We we have to understand. So the other day, I was I was in L.A. meeting with a friend that that worked in in local politics, but he also worked in Hollywood. And we were talking about. So I have a feature length video documentary that I'm going to be screening, um, hopefully this year, called Kayfabe, and it's about the way um, we consume media. Um, and he's he's helping me, you know, put together some some strategies for how we're going to screen it and stuff like that. And we were talking a little bit about his time in local politics as well. And he was telling us about um, there's a flag at a veterans park and you always have to have uh, lights on a flag in the U.S. I don't know if the same way where you are. They always have to be shown on the flag. And if a light goes out, there's three different divisions of the city that are in charge of three different lights around this park. Wow, that, that's and, definitely not the same in this this country. We don't have uh, we don't have this old glory kind of like uh, respect for the for the flag. The Union Jack, I think, is uh, the brand is a bit tarnished. It, it, it's not, it's not anyway, the same. Sorry. So no, 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 I get it. And so he's telling us about how people called him when he had his position, and they would say the lights out. He goes, well, can you take a picture for me? They're like, we're not going to take a picture for you. Just come down here and change it. The lights out. And he's like, I, I understand that, but I need to see a picture because I need, and before he could even say, I need to know who to send, it was just, just get down here and change it. And, you know, and he'd have to drive down, find out which light is out, you know, and, and divvy it up to the right department. But I don't think people understand the levels of bureaucracy that are involved with politics. I don't think they understand that in this current context, the, the, the good, not good thing, but the thing that Trump did for the GOP or maybe both parties that they wanted, I don't know, was all these conservative judges are kicking so many rights back to states that now these governors are almost like kings of their own small little fiefdoms. And I think I talk about it a little bit in that piece. So we saw that with abortion, right? It's up to the states. We're not going to have any federal sweeping legislation. So presidents alone have a lot less power. You know, Joe Biden, when he passes his real kind of flimsy 
reform to let all these people out for weed charges. I don't think anybody even got out because there that would have had to have been federal charges, and it wasn't even for like transporting pot um, back then because he couldn't pardon anybody for state charges. So I don't think we understand how much power governors and mayors and district attorneys have, have sheriffs have. Um, and because we're so disconnected from the way these things actually operate, we don't understand. And the solutions that we pose don't really work. And sometimes it's easy to get involved at a protest because once you do it, you're done, right? I, I've yeah. made my sign. I shout it. There's a picture of me there. I was there. Where were you? And it's like I was doing paperwork, <laughs> you know, because yes. movements, movements cool. aren't fun, right? Movements aren't fun. Movements are paperwork. It's phone calls. It's fun. I kind of like paperwork and spreadsheets and (laughs) all that sort of thing. Um, You you know what? Say that that kind of stuff more, and then we can actually have a real movement because we all know it's not all, you know, spectator protests and throwing cans of soup at cops. Um. Fighting the power. It's boring. Yeah. Meeting places and getting the the venues and, you know, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Dealing with people to form coalitions. You know, the best thing I ever did with my life, I feel, besides being a dad, is, um, is working at the homeless shelter because, you know, it didn't pay good. And it's a very thankless job, but the people that do it, I think, are amazing people. Um, if you know anyone that works at a place like that, hug them. You know, they need it. Trust me. Um, I got a lot of autonomy while I was there to do what I wanted to do. Um, so I wanted to turn this place into a resort. That was my whole thing. I was like, if we really want to try to do anything about the conditions for people we have to stop trying to just warehouse them and wonder why (laughs) no one can get out of this shit and because of the people that i knew from like the music world and and just my friend circle for over the years um we had literal professional trainers coming in helping people with movement and mobility issues um we had yoga We had art therapy classes. Um, we actually put a school together from other unhoused people there that taught, and we had some kids there. Um, it, I don't want to say it was fun. I mean, it, we tried to make it as fun as possible. You know what I mean? Um, but I had a vision, and I, mm. I think – for a time, people were on board. I won't get into the particulars of why I had to leave, but um, <sighs> I guess that's kind of the opposite yeah. of the spectacle in a way. Yeah, like you know, maybe that's the. I don't want to be too trite. The 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 end the end the the, the thing to do is uh, the less spectacular, the it's, better. It's, the more I'm not bragging about it on social. Well, I'm talking about it now, but I wasn't. It wasn't like I was taking pictures every five minutes to be like, look at what I'm doing. 
it was you didn't do it for the gram i mean did it even did, really happen? dude i did it because it needed to be done first and foremost and number two i lost everything at one point in time i lived in a van i was homeless so i come from the same place as these people right we're all the same and you, you're just doing your job and it's for the community that I'm from. Um, and I was surprised that when people would meet me and I started doing my show and I would talk about these things, we did a Mother's Day episode. Um, I, it's one of the early, we have five, 400 and some episodes now, over 500 actually, because we have different show titles and stuff. But one of the earlier shows, I think show like 25, did a Mother's Day episode because a woman wanted to get her hair done and we couldn't have guests. And she got mad at me. She looked at me. She goes, I can't even get my hair done on Mother's Day. What the hell is this? And it kind of fucked me up because I thought to myself, she just wants to look pretty. And because of the rules and they're in place for very good reason, trust me couldn't have people in and out and I talked and we didn't have anything planned from the these places don't give a damn about the holidays it's just another day to them and so I I mentioned I said on air to a very very small following any help you guys can have for Mother's Day would be huge if we could make this kind of a nice day for these people for these women and um, people I didn't know George just swarmed to the to the shelter and just gave all this stuff there was flowers there was candy there was food there was nice. gift cards i mean that's that's kind of a it may seem like charity fairy tale stuff but for a moment <clears throat> people understand that these aren't just a throwaway population of people you know what i mean yeah. the underclass I mean, ideology went away for for a minute and uh, some of these people still even got involved with with the shelter themselves that came down to uh, to to donate. So great, thanks so much, Jason, for being with us. So, just listeners, we'll link to all the articles we discussed in the in the show notes, and check out more from uh, Jason over at sublationmag.com. And just a final plug for uh, Jason's documentary. Um, and I thought it was pronounced K K Fabi. So I, I mean, I did clearly. I'm K Fabe. Yeah, it's K Fabe. Um, yeah. So I have, there's a whole playlist on the This Is Revolution YouTube page of all the mini documentaries that I made or video essays, whatever you want to call them. I'm definitely influenced by uh, one of your countrymen, Adam Curtis, um, stylistically. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I yeah, I think he's he's had such a, I don't know. Yeah, such an influence on like you can just put two things together and and let let the let the viewer make a connection and it works yeah. i think it works really well um <laughs> yeah and final final plug for again this is this is revolution um check check that out listeners but yeah jason thanks so much for being with us thank you very much <laughs> Thank you.